Good morning. Apparently, uh, while I was away, the youth put on a talent show. Did many of you get to attend that? Someone borrowed one of my jackets and imitated me. Actually, it was this jacket. And I, I personally don't have a problem with that at all, except he might have emptied the pockets afterward. He left a bunch of junk in my pocket. So when I put on this jacket this morning, I'm picking through it, finding all sorts of things. And one in particular uh, caught my attention, a little booklet, Discovering and Living Out God's Plan for Our Lives, Womanhood. That's, that's disconcerting on a couple of levels, but uh, Chase, they're here. You can come get them afterwards, and we'll schedule a little time to review your selection of reading material. Good to be back with you. Great to be here, as a matter of fact. We had a wonderful time in uh, Singapore and Malaysia. Uh, We're only back for a brief time, just enough time to do laundry. Basically, Laura and I are off again on Wednesday to uh, Brazil, and we'll be there for nine days until July the 6th. I'm preaching at a couple of conferences there. That's the last trip for the year, I promise. It, just the way it worked out, these two trips so close together. But certainly uh, ask you to continue to pray for me specifically, health and strength, and for uh, God's blessing upon the preaching and proclamation of his word. If you're into the sermon notes, uh, you'll notice that the title for today's sermon, uh, Fearing God and Fearing God, that isn't a typo. That is what I intended as the, as the sermon title, Fearing God and Fearing God. And I trust uh, the significance of that title. Uh, what I'm trying to convey by it will be self-evident by the time we're finished here this morning. There are, in fact, when we look through the Old Testament, by my reckoning, there are over 300 references in the Old Testament to the fear of God. And so it is a central motif in the Old Testament. And this motif also looms large when we come into the New Testament. And let me give you but a sampling of what I mean. And don't try to turn to these references. I'm just going to read them quickly. And this is just to convey, this is just to impart how central this theme, the fear of God, is to Scripture. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence. The word is really fear. Out of fear for Christ. A couple more. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear. And on and on it goes. But a sampling from the New Testament. 
And again, let me repeat it, over 300 references to the fear of God in the Old Testament. We can deduce from that uh, the following. This motif, this subject, this theme, the fear of God is central. As a matter of fact, it is fundamental to the Christian faith. It led Matthew Henry, famous commentary, uh, Matthew Henry to write the following words. Of all things that are to be known, this is most evident, that God is to be feared. He doesn't stop there. He adds another statement. This is so the beginning of knowledge that those know nothing who do not know this. The fear of God is so the beginning of knowledge that those know nothing who do not know this. The centrality of the fear of God, fundamental to the Christian faith. And I dare say, essential for us to emphasize and re-emphasize in our day. I was having a discussion just a couple of weeks ago in Malaysia, lunchtime, hills, tea plantations surrounding us, beautiful, this older couple. And they were lamenting the state of the church in Singapore. Strong tradition, strong history. But lamenting that in their generation they had witnessed a shift. They had witnessed a change. Uh, namely this, numerically the church has not declined. As a matter of fact, it has actually increased. But a spiritual malaise has set in upon the church. And I think we can relate to that to a certain degree here in the United States. That the church, for all of its numerical growth, for all of its political sway, for all of its programs and methodologies, there is, sad to say, prevalent a spiritual malaise. And if we need anything today, it is the rediscovery of this essential biblical truth of what it means to fear God, to live daily in the fear of the Almighty. Now, Thomas Manton, an old Puritan, penned the following, most people content themselves with a superficial belief. Oh, friend, I pray that is not you. Most people, and he's speaking of professing Christians, most people content themselves with a superficial belief. In other words, they ascribe intellectually to the Christian faith. They agree, sure, wholeheartedly with the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection. They know the stories. They were raised in the church. They've memorized countless verses. And they've heard more sermons than they care to remember. But they have failed to internalize any of it. And it's simply stuck here in the brain, the cognitive. And it is nothing more than an intellectual faith. Most people content themselves with a superficial belief. The essence of the Christian faith and the pivotal question that we must always ask ourselves as Christians sojourning here on earth is the following. Have we taken it to heart? Not whether or not we understand it cognitively. That is important. We cannot address the heart apart from the head. But the key question, really important question, the probing question is this. Have we actually taken it to heart? Is the fear of the Lord resident in our hearts? That's the theme we're going to consider today, fearing God and fearing God. We're going to do so in the context of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Now, last year, we looked at the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, the life of, of, of uh, Samuel. And a month or so ago, uh, we started to look at uh, the life of Saul, beginning in chapter 8, and we're going to go in this series as far as chapter 15. What have we seen to this point? Very simply, by way of review, uh, 
Now, the tribes of Israel who are living in the land of Canaan, keep in mind we're going back 3,000 years and then some, at least 3,000 years. They're living in the tribe of Israel. They're a loose confederation of tribes. And they decide that they want a king. At the root of their request actually lurks idolatry. Their desire is to be like the nations around them. And their request for a king is actually a rejection of God, who is their king by covenant. But they reject him. God warns the people through Samuel, a judge, a prophet, of the ways of the kind of king they want. And says forcefully that this king is going to lead you astray. And ultimately, this king will take your very freedom from you. But they're insistent. They will not listen. They've hardened their hearts. They turn deaf ears. No, but we will have a king over us. And so God promises to grant their request. He orchestrates events by his sovereignty. And he brings this man who walks according to the flesh. He brings this man whose mind is set on the flesh. We know him as Saul. He orchestrates events to bring Saul to Samuel. And then he confirms privately his selection of Saul, privately to Saul, and then publicly to the nation of Israel. Some within the nation of Israel, there's this this dissenting voice, this dissenting element. They don't want anything to do with Saul. And so God confirms his choice, his selection of Saul on the battlefield by giving him a resounding military victory over the Ammonites. That victory having been won on the battlefield, the people return, they gather as one man in a place called Gilgal. And they gather there to renew the covenant, the covenant of old, the covenant into which they entered with God way back at Sinai, 300 years or so prior to this date. That brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said, so they're in Gilgal, they're there renewing the covenant. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me. And have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. 
And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so here we are with the nation of Israel in this place west of the Jordan, central Israel, territorially speaking, this place called Gilgal. The entire nation is there, and they're renewing this covenant. As part of this renewal, Samuel gives what? His farewell address. He's bidding so long. And in this farewell address, he is resigning his role as judge. This ends 300 years of history. He is the last in that long line of judges, Samson, Jephthah, Deborah. We know them all. And in addition to resigning his role as judge, he is reaffirming his role as prophet. And here he comes to the nation of Israel, his voice thundering as the prophet of the Lord, calling them to covenant faithfulness. And essentially, he does four things. And so I'm going to give you the essence of the text by breaking down this passage into these four sections. What Samuel does, what he's trying to accomplish here in his farewell address to the nation as he packs it in. He's not dying yet. He doesn't, his death isn't recorded for several more chapters. This isn't his death. This is simply his resignation as judge. You now have your anointed. He's before you. There's your king. My role as judge is done. But now let me continue to speak as prophet. And so what does he say? We get our minds around these four things. We'll have the essence of the text. And then we'll see emerging from his prophetic message, that thundering prophetic voice, is this admonition to fear God. And so the first thing Samuel does is this. He reminds the people of his blamelessness. It begins in the very first verse. And it goes as far as verse 5. 
And so simply put, what he does here is he calls the people's attention to his life. He has been a judge among them 30, 40 years, and he is vindicating himself. He is pointing to his innocence, and he opens it up to testimony. And he asks the obvious questions right there, middle of verse 3. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? In other words, have I stolen from any of you? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Samuel already knows the answers to these questions. He has lived an upright, he has lived a blameless, he has lived an innocent life, fulfilling his role as judge among and over the nation of Israel. And now he calls the people to declare it verbally. And they do confirm it. Verse 4, they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Now the question is this, why does Samuel bother with this? Is, this, is he throwing a little pity party here? Is he just trying to pat himself on the back? Look, I've done a wonderful job, an upstanding job, and God is my judge, and now God will receive me favorably. That's what's going on here. No, Samuel, Samuel is forcing, he is obligating the nation as one voice to testify. He's saying, look, I want to hear it from you verbally. I want to hear it from your lips that no man here standing in my presence right now can charge me with anything. I have been blameless. Let me hear it. I want to hear it with one voice. Why is he doing that? Shelf the question. And we'll come back to it in just a moment. Look at the second thing Samuel does. Verses 6 through 11. He reminds the people of God's faithfulness. So he has reminded them of his blamelessness. Now he reminds them of God's faithfulness. And he draws their attention, interestingly enough, verse 7, he draws their attention to what he calls all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And then he proceeds in verse 8 to give them a little history lesson. They already know this history lesson. They know it well, but he's going to drive it home anyway. And he says, look, let's go all the way back to to our forefathers. And let's remember Abraham, let's remember Isaac, let's remember Jacob. And let's remember Jacob, that is Israel. He went down into the land of Egypt, where the Lord blessed him numerically, and he grew into a nation. But the Egyptians enslaved our forefathers. But what did God do? Oh, his righteous deeds. In accordance with his covenant faithfulness, the promise he had made to our forefather, Abraham, he brought our forefathers out of the land of Egypt and brought them here to this land that we now dwell in. But let's fast forward through our 300 years of history since we've been here in the land, this period known as the Judges, and let's remember, let's take stock of what exactly has transpired. You see, there has been an ongoing cycle And the book of Judges records this cycle. It's actually six stages. One, two, three, four, five, six. This repetitive cycle of what? Disobedience, distress, and then deliverance. And by reminding them of this cycle whereby they rebelled continually against God, and yet God graciously continually delivered them, he is reminding them of God's faithfulness. He is pointing them to God's righteous deeds. Oh, remember, people, God's amazing patience. 
over and over again, you played the spiritual harlot. And you went chasing after the Baals. You went chasing after Ashtoreth. You went chasing after all these gods repeatedly, generation after generation after generation. And what did God do? When you cried out for distress, before that he would send these nations, the Moabites and the Philistines and the Amalekites and others to oppress you. And then when you called out in your distress, what did he do? Oh, he sent men like Samson. He sent Jephthah. He sent me, Samuel, to deliver you. He raised up these judges. Oh, oh, remember his righteous deeds. Remember his amazing patience with you. And remember his amazing power in delivering you. And so he is forcing them again publicly as a whole to do what? Testify to God's faithfulness. He has brought their attention to his own blamelessness. Now he brings their attention, he reminds the people of God's faithfulness. Why is he doing this? The answer now emerges in verses 12 and 13, the third thing he does. He rebukes the people for their sin. Look at verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. You see, that king, he he had appointed me. And this isn't self-righteousness on Samuel's part. This isn't him stroking his overinflated ego. He's simply stating the facts. God raised up me as a judge. And and I lived a blameless life before you. And I did absolutely everything God called me to do. And as a matter of fact, under my rule, during my, 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 my time of these 30, 40 years... Uh, We've known deliverance from the Philistines. And and what's more than that, as you go back in the past, you you remember God's faithfulness. That whenever you sinned in the past, he sent enemies to oppress you. You called out in your distress, and he sent a deliverer. Well, here we go. This cycle again is occurring. And again, you have rejected God. And again, God is sending oppressors. This time, it's the Ammonites. This time, it's it's this, this, this king known as Nahash. But in the past, what your forefathers did was this. They cried out to God. But what are you doing now? You're crying out, give us a king. We no longer want that God. We no longer want that God who has exercised such amazing patience with us and has manifested such amazing amazing power over us. We no longer want that God who was our rightful king with whom we entered into a covenant at Sinai. Here's what we want. We want a human king over us like the nations. And so here Samuel is getting to the heart of their sin by reminding them firstly, forcing them to testify to his blamelessness. Secondly, testify, witness to God's faithfulness. And then he sets that in the context of the darkness of their sin and their rebellion. They have taken it to a new level. This is something your forefathers never did. Even in their days of distress, yes, idolatry, yes, oppression, but in those days of distress, they turned back to God. That is something you have not done. You are now seeking a deliverer in a human king. He rebukes the people for their sin. The fourth thing Samuel does, beginning in verse 14, and this takes us right through to the end of the chapter, is he exhorts the people to remember the covenant. 
There are actually five parts here. Very simply, very quickly. The first part is a call to fear God. This is the essence of the covenant. Verse 14. If you will fear the Lord. So he's calling them. He's just giving a basic summary of the covenant that was established at Sinai 300 years previously. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And so what has been done has been done. You've sinned. You've requested a king. God has raised up Saul. He has appointed a king over you. But here is what you must not forget. You must never forget it. God remains the true and only king. And you remain in covenant with him. Even though you have this human king over you now, you must remember and you must never forget. You and the Lord's anointed, that king himself, must never forget that covenant and must continue to fear the Lord. And if you fear the Lord, look at the end of verse 14, it will be well. There's a promised blessing. But, verse 15, here's the other side of the covenant. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. And your king. And so there's the first part. A call to fear God. The second part is this, a confirmation. Samuel wants to buttress his prophetic message. And he really wants to lend credence to his rebuke and desires that the people take it to heart and really get it. And so it's confirmed. How? With a great thing. Look at verse 16. Now therefore stand still. And see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. What is he going to do? He's going to send a thunderstorm. What time of year is it? It's wheat harvest. That's May, June in the Israelite calendar. Why is that significant? It doesn't rain during May and June. It doesn't rain at that time of year. And so God is going to send not merely rain. He is going to send a horrific thunderstorm. So that there can be no misunderstanding, no misinterpretation on the part of the people of Israel. They will know indeed that this is the hand of God, a confirmation. And then we have thirdly, a confession. Begins in verse 18. So Samuel called upon the Lord. And the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And how do the people respond? The rest of verse 18. All the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. What does it lead them to do? Verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. That is telling. The prophet's voice is beginning to penetrate. It is beginning to sink in. They've said it with their own lips. Yes, you are blameless. They've seen it with their own minds, their own history. Yes, God is is faithful. Yes, we have proved unfaithful. Yes, we have demonstrated our exceeding wickedness. Yes, we have manifested our sin in asking for a king. And now there is this raging thunderstorm threatening them. And it forces them to acknowledge the error of their ways. And yet look what they say. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. Remember that. We'll come back to it in just a moment. The fourth part here is a command. What does Samuel say? Verse 20. He said to the people, do not be afraid. Well, didn't he tell them to be afraid back in verse 14? And aren't they now groveling on the ground afraid? 
So why does he now say, I mean, Sam, you'll make up your mind. Why does he now say to them, do not be afraid? It is simply because the people are cowering before the Lord. They are cowering in the presence of this thunderstorm because they perceive God to be a threat to their well-being. So Samuel is essentially saying, do not fear God that way. Yes, turn aside, in verse 20, do not turn aside from following the Lord. You must serve him with all your heart. And then he gives a couple of wonderful promises, beginning in verse 22. The Lord will not forsake his people. Where there is repentance, the Lord will not forsake his people. Where there is faithfulness, the Lord will not turn his back. Where there is, where there is obedience, the Lord will not bring judgment. He will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And he adds a second promise, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And so he assures them of his ongoing role as mediator. And I will instruct you. Here he assumes his role as prophet, continues his role as prophet. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. And then there's a fifth section. Brings us to the conclusion of this point. Another call to fear the Lord. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so Samuel, that's the conclusion of his farewell address. He has reminded the people, firstly, of his blamelessness. He's setting them up for what's coming. He has reminded them, secondly, of God's faithfulness. Now he gets to his main point, thirdly. He rebukes them for their sin, their wickedness in requesting a king. And then, fourthly, the major section in his farewell address, he exhorts, he urges the people to remain faithful to the covenant. Now, in that exhortation, where he's exhorting and urging the people to covenant faithfulness, you see the emphasis on the fear of God. And I trust the significance of the sermon title, the light's beginning to go on, fearing God and fearing God. Because what do we have in verse 14? Again, we have that commandment, if you will fear the Lord. And then what do we have at the end of verse 18? All the people greatly feared the Lord. And then what do we have in verse 20? Do not be afraid. And then what do we have in verse 24? Only fear the Lord. Fearing God and fearing God. Evidently, there are two ways, distinct ways, very different ways of doing that. This distinction is also evident, wonderfully evident, in the book of Exodus chapter 20. And there in the book of Exodus, in that case, we've gone back centuries the nation of Israel, God has just brought them out of the land of Egypt. He has brought them to the base of Mount Sinai. And he has descended that visible manifestation of his glory. And the mountain is covered with that smoke. There is that fire. There is the trumpet blast. There is the lightning. There is this horrific storm. And we read that the people prostrate themselves, that they are gripped with fear. They're terrified. And Moses, on that occasion, speaks the following words to them. Do not fear. There it is. Do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So Moses does the precise thing 
that Samuel does. Samuel does the precise thing that Moses did. Uh, Do not fear God, but fear God. Fear God, but do not fear God. John Bunyan, commenting on that text in Exodus chapter chapter 20, verse 20, wrote the following. Here is a fear and a fear. That's profound. Here is a fear and a fear. A fear forbidden and a fear commended. That is what we have in Exodus 20. That is what we have here in 1 Samuel 12. A fear forbidden and a fear commended. Here's the pivotal question and central question. It is this. How do we fear God? In what way do we fear God? What is the essence of of our fear before the Almighty. There are three distinguishing marks between these two fears, a fear forbidden and a fear commended, or what I'm going to call for simplicity's sake, ungodly fear and godly fear. The old theologians, they referred to them as servile fear. That is the fear of a servant toward his master. And filial fear, that is the fear of a son toward his father. Are you getting the distinction, the, the, the two categories? These are, these, these, this is extremely important. There are two pillars here. So we have a fear forbidden and a fear commended. An ungodly fear, a godly fear. An unholy fear, a holy fear. A servile fear, a filial fear. How do we distinguish between them? Three ways. Number one, they differ in their object. They differ in their object. Let me sum that up in two sentences. And then I'll explain these sentences. Here they are. Number one, ungodly fear flows from God wrongly perceived. Ungodly fear flows from God wrongly perceived. Here's the second. Godly fear flows from God rightly perceived. That's what we have in the text. Ungodly fear flows from God wrongly perceived. That's precisely what we see in verse 18. Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord. Why do they fear God? They fear God because they perceive Him wrongly. How do they perceive Him? They see God in one way, one way alone. It is this, as a tyrant. He's a tyrant. He is somebody who's out to get us. He is somebody who is threatening us. He is somebody who is threatening to hurt us. And as any self-preservationist would, they're trying to avoid that which threatens them. And so they are gripped with this fear. They are gripped with this horror. They are gripped with this terror flowing from how God is wrongly perceived in their mind's eye, simply as a tyrant who has come now to punish them. But the fear, true fear of God, flows from God rightly perceived. And how is God to be perceived rightly? The text tells us. Look firstly at verse 7, what Samuel says there in his farewell address. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Look secondly at verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. 
That's not what they're considering. They are not considering God's righteous deeds, those deeds which he has performed throughout their history. They are not focused on those great things which he has done on their behalf. They are gripped in the immediate, in the present, by this threatening thunderstorm. And in their worldview, in their myopic view of God, their only view of him, their only understanding of him, their only perception of him right now to me, he is a tyrant. And he is here to punish me. He is here to afflict suffering upon me. And therefore they are filled with what? Great fear. But you see, godly fear, godly fear flows not from God wrongly perceived as a tyrant. It flows from God rightly perceived, his great works, his righteous deeds, which he performs on behalf of his people. Samuel is even more specific. You go back to verse 22. This is wonderful. Here, here, here is what should occupy their thoughts. He tells them, you're not to be afraid like that. Don't fear God like that. And what does he add here? A wonderful promise, verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And so godly fear flows from God rightly perceived. That is, as God has revealed himself to be in his name. Moses is there on Sinai. He's receiving the law. This is recorded in Exodus chapter 34. And the Lord descended. And the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. Here is the Lord's name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's not God as the Israelites perceive him here. They have a wrong, distorted, twisted perception of God. They have lost sight of his covenant name. And the fear of God, true godly fear, filial fear, holy fear, it flows from a sense of God's name. It flows from a sense, a deep sense, and reckoning with his steadfast love. Here we stand as Christians, those of us who are Christians, we stand this side of the cross. Israel, in this day and age, they're on the other side of the cross. And in the prophetic voice, their attention, their mind, they're always forced to reflect on what? The exodus. That is the pivotal moment in their history. That side of the cross, the age of preparation. We're no longer in that age. We're in the age of fulfillment. And we look to what? This true spiritual exodus. Our, our, our great Passover lamb who was sacrificed for is the Lord Jesus and that great redemption which he accomplished at Calvary's cross. And there, as we continually go back to what the Lord Jesus has accomplished and what God has revealed concerning himself at Calvary's cross, we see what? The essence of his name. And we behold what? His steadfast, unwavering love for his people. And that cultivates and instills in us what? Godly fear of the Lord. Let me break this down for you as simply as I can as we focus our attention on the Lord Jesus and God's steadfast love. Let me break it down in two ways. The first is this. We see God's name in Christ. We see God's steadfast love in Christ because God gives Christ for us. That is redemption. Hear these words, please. God's love left a glorious crown. That's Jesus Christ. God's love came in humility. God's love took our infirmities. 
God's love was in a bloody agony. God's love was sorrowful unto death. God's love was betrayed. God's love was condemned. God's love was pierced with thorns. God's love climbed a shameful cross. In the words of one preacher, the essence of sin is we, human beings, substituting ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. That is the cross. We put ourselves where God deserves to be. God put himself where we deserve to be. That is redemption. That is God's name. And that is God's steadfast love. We see it secondly in the Lord Jesus as follows. Not only does God give Christ for us redemption, he gives Christ to us conversion. And as a result of our union with the Lord Jesus, we enjoy the benefits of his cross. His forgiveness is greater than our sin. His merit is greater than our guilt. His strength is greater than our weakness. His humility is greater than our pride. His suffering is greater than our failure. His fullness is greater than our want. And his righteousness is greater than our Vileness. Oh, the Lord descended at Sinai before Moses. He descended and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, at Calvary's cross, God descended. And at the cross, God proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The fear of God flows from a sense, a deep sense of his name, his steadfast love. They differ in their object. They differ, secondly, in their effect. Again, let me give you two sentences, and I'll try to explain them. The first is this. Ungodly fear compels us to run from God. Godly fear compels us to run to God. It is that simple. I'll repeat it anyway. Ungodly fear compels us to run from God. Godly fear compels us to run to God. Again, that is evident in the text. Look at verse 18. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. What is their response? Verse 19. All the people said to Samuel, Pray, you pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. That's all they're concerned about. For yes, we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. What is their primary principal preoccupation? What is their principal concern? It is simply this. Get them away. You intercede for us. You pray for us. Yes, we acknowledge it. Yes, we confess it. Pray that he goes away. Pray that the threat is removed. Take him away. You see, that is an ungodly fear. An ungodly fear will always cause us to run away from God. We see it powerfully illustrated in Mark chapter 5. The Lord Jesus has crossed the Sea of Galilee. He's disembarked from the boat in the land of the Gerasenes. And that man possessed with that legion of demons comes running. The Lord Jesus, with a word, heals him, casts out those demons. The demons enter into the swine, that herd of swine. They hurl down the side of the slope into the sea. They're drowned. There are spectators. People see this happen. They run off quickly and tell others. A multitude gathers. What is their response? This is wonderful. The Messiah has come among us. 
This is wonderful. What a tremendous display of the power of God. I repent of my sin and believe. What was their response? Go away from us. That was their response. They were greatly gripped with fear. The text tells us that. They were overcome with fear. They feared God, but it led them to do what? Run away from God. You see, ungodly fear will always stir in us simply the desire to remove the perceived threat. Now, this is where we need to examine ourselves carefully. How many of us here right now are here simply why? Because, well, I feel like I need to be. And uh, if I don't, well, maybe, yeah, maybe God will be waiting for me in the tall grass and, uh, and do something, right? Uh, how many of us refrain from you know, public, scandalous sin? Why? Well, if I do that, well, then God's going to do this. And I don't want God to do that, and so I won't do that. You know what that is, friend? That's simply ungodly fear. If the threat were removed, what would we do? Whatever we jolly well felt like. That is ungodly fear. That is a fear which views God simply as a tyrant. The object is all wrong. It's a skewed perception of who God is. And therefore, it is a fear which affects us wrongly. It makes us want to run away from that which we fear. But godly fear, what does it do? It compels us to run to God manifesting itself in what? Obedience. You see this in verse 20, verse 24. Manifesting itself in service. Manifesting itself in worship. William Gouge wrote, when the soul feels, when the soul feels a sweet taste of God's goodness. In other words, when you've really been to the cross and you found yourself groveling there, and you found yourself prostrate before the name of the Lord declared and revealed at the cross, and you've seen God giving His Son for us and to us, and when we've tasted of the sweetness of His goodness, what do we find? We find that in His favor, that is God's favor, only all happiness consists. And what is the result? We are stricken with such an inward awe and reverence. That is the fear of the Lord. And our desire now is what? It is to obey. Not because God is a tyrant waiting to get us. But why? Because God has revealed his steadfast love in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it has created in us a melting disposition whereby our heart's desire now is to know his will and simply do it. That is it. That is godly fear. That is a holy fear. That is a fear commended. That is what Moses is saying at Sinai to the people. Don't fear God like that. No, you're guilty of idolatry. You're misperceiving him. No, God has come among you that the fear of him might remain with you, that you might not sin. In other words, his glory as he reveals himself as he is in his greatness and his goodness, it is designed to melt your hearts that you give yourself to him. And it's precisely now what Samuel is saying to the people of Israel. Yes, fear the Lord. Yes, remember the covenant. And here's what you must do. You must consider his righteous deeds and you must remember the great things he has done for you. Oh, just sit down for five minutes each day and contemplate your own history and what God has done for you. And see his amazing patience, his amazing power, understand the full significance of his name. That's how you are to fear him. Not groveling here now, begging me to intercede on your behalf to make it go away. That's not it. You've completely misunderstood. And it brings us now to the third difference between these two kinds of fear. They differ not only in their object, not only in their effect, but they differ in their fruit. 
the fruit they produce, the fruit they bear. Again, two sentences to sum it all up. Number one, ungodly fear is based on a legal relationship which we want to escape. That's it. Ungodly fear is based on a legal relationship that we want to escape, get out from under. No fruit. Godly fear is based on a family relationship which we want to cultivate. We want to cultivate. Just look at verse 14 quickly. If you will fear the Lord, and the last statement is what I want us to get at, and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, your beautiful words, it will be, it will be well. There's the fruit of godly fear. It will be well. When we fear God, we obey him. When we obey him, we harmonize our lives with ultimate reality. The result is what? True joy. True peace, true comfort, true pleasure, true happiness. In the words of the preacher, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Let me end where I began those words of Matthew Henry. Of all things that are to be known, this is most evident, that God is to be feared. This is so the beginning of knowledge that those know nothing who do not know this. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have made yourself known in Scripture. You have revealed your great name. We praise you for this revelation, for your righteous deeds, for your amazing patience and amazing power, for your mighty acts of salvation, for your warnings and promises as given through the prophets. We ask you to bless your word to all who are gathered here in your presence. We bless you for your Son, our Savior. And it is through his name we pray. Amen.